the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Listening into recent speeches by various executives, you might be forgiven for thinking that the industry is unified, aligned, and working towards a common goal when it comes to decarbonisation. The reality is inevitably a little bit more complex. We have seen a lot of pledges, a lot of plans, a lot of trials and concepts and programmes. But following several years of aspirational rhetoric and easy promises on decarbonisation, the deadlines are starting to close in and the decisions are required. And this is the point where we start to measure the gap between rhetoric and reality. The academic studies and the industry reports are pretty clear. Action is needed now, investment is urgent, and scale should be our number one priority. But the academics tend not to understand the finer detail of what it takes to put a piece of green tech onto a ship, or how long it will take to test, learn, and scale, while simultaneously keeping shipping as safe as we've managed to get it over the past few decades. And for further thoughts on that point, please revisit last week's podcast before carrying on with this edition. Last year, in the run-up to the COP26 decarbonisation summit, we saw lots of announcements and agreements in principle. But the gap between agreement in principle and actually getting those ships on the water is years. And that has created expectations that progress would be quicker than has turned out to be the case. We know instinctively that the green transition is going to be a generational shift, and we know it's going to cost trillions of dollars. That is a sum that would seem scary even to Maersk's accountants. This is a daunting prospect when you consider those trillions represent a global energy shift that is needed to develop the production infrastructure. Shipping as an industry can't unlock that by itself, but what it can do is be ready and be a demand source for those new green fuels with sufficient learning and experience to have de-risked them by the time they're available. Anyway, with that in mind, I have turned this week to an old colleague of mine who I would class as one of the most astute people working in shipping right now. Someone who is grappling with these very issues and trying to bridge the gap between rhetoric and reality on a daily basis. Claire Wright is the General Manager of Commercial Shipping and Strategy at Shell. She joins me this week to discuss a pretty broad set of topics covering everything from fuels and innovation to investment and second-guessing political progress. I started this week by asking her whether she recognised the deflated feeling I've been struggling with ever since COP26, and whether the industry has lost some of the momentum this year when it comes to decarbonisation. I think we can always move faster, but I think the momentum is still there. I think last year there was obviously a lot of publicity and a lot of push towards COP, but I think what you're seeing now this year, and certainly I can attest for what's going on inside of our own shop, there's a lot of work going on because although we need that supportive policy environment um, and there's still work to be done there um, when we look forward towards future IMO MEPC meetings we still need that as an industry so that we can all move forward together but certainly there's a lot of work going on um, I would say in two key areas one is infrastructure um, which is a beyond shipping question particularly the development of renewables um, technology and uh, infrastructure and also the development of technologies that ships can use and there's a lot of work going on in the industry by all stakeholders OEMs um, engine makers ourselves developing the technologies that ships will be able to use to be able to use net zero fuels and I think the thing 
is probably one of the biggest challenges that I think is what you're talking to is time, mm. where there's an expectation of instant change to net zero solutions. You know, we have, say, policy announcements in COP, and then we can instantly transform, and we can't. There's a lot of work that needs to be done before we can get there to enable us to use zero carbon fuels like hydrogen or ammonia safely. And we're not in that space yet. We don't have the technologies. We are working on them and there are a lot of industry projects going on to do that. But it needs time to be able to do that. And in the meantime, the choices we have available are lower carbon options that ship owners and charters like ourselves can choose today, but not that silver bullet of the net zero solution. So I'm positive in summary to your question, <laughs> Richard. The work is happening, but probably you're not seeing the announcements because the work has to happen first. And it's that it's that chicken and egg question. You've got you've got a uh, you have to to some extent wait for the technology to be available as a ship owner, um, not just the technology, but also the the, the green infrastructure and the green um, availability of the fuels that will power that infrastructure in those ships. But you also have to maintain and manage your own fleet in the interim, and that's a tricky balancing act. Where do you see those decisions being made? Because you're looking at this both from a chartering point of view as somebody who's directly involved in many specific projects around this you're you're obviously very pro LNG being uh, shell but um, how's that going at the moment? So when we look at it and obviously we're making choices ourselves as a charterer as you say we're looking really I can put it into three buckets one is efficiency and efficiency is critical for the short and the long term because all of the zero carbon fuels on the table have a lower energy density than fuels we use today. And so if we're not to fundamentally change how we trade or how we bunker, we need ships to be much, much more efficient than they are. So we are making those choices ourselves. They help obviously with the short term, with the forthcoming regulation, particularly the operational efficiency regulations. So for our new LNG carriers, for example, we've installed air lubrication, we've installed a trim and optimization software called JAWS, shaft generation, Uh, There's also wind technologies, all of which there's an economic case for doing today that will only get stronger when we see the regulations that are coming forward. What we have had to do with that, and this is what you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation that I used to do a lot to do with data, that is still critical because what we found, for example, with our LNG carriers is having both air lubrication and this trim and optimization software. We need to enable the crews to use those tools together for the best effect because there are certain settings where one uses one and it counteracts the benefit that you get from the other. So it's not a simple choice, but obviously it's a lot easier on a new build where these technologies are embedded into the design rather than something that is retrofitted afterwards. We've done both and certainly our latest LNG carriers, that design that includes all of those technologies I've mentioned is now one that the yards are offering as a standard and that other owners and charters have chosen. The second thing you mentioned fuels. Yes, we have been choosing dual fuel LNG for our ships um, on the oil side. And certainly we see that as a a very good choice because the global infrastructure is there. What needs developing is that last mile delivery and it's the lowest lower carbon option available today. There are also bio blends that work in certain geographies and certainly some of our customers, particularly on the container side, have been choosing those. And then the third bucket I would talk about is measurement. 
And I think this is really important and perhaps is underestimated. Um, and it's not just aligning with, you know, having an end goal. It's it's understanding the journey to get to that end goal, whether that's the IMO's 50% target or a net zero 2050 target. So we've signed up to the Sea Cargo Charter. And one of the reasons I pushed for us to do that was so that not only do we have an ambition, but we're also measured on the journey to get there. And the Sea Cargo Charter, which is for dry and liquid bulk charterers, has a trajectory to 2050. And then year on year, we will report. And for each of our vessel classes we charter, we will see how we're doing against that trajectory. Mm. Now, I would expect us to have greater options in the 2030s to accelerate that than we do in the 2020s today, where we're using the, the things I've just talked about, the efficiency, the fuel choices. But I think it's really important for us to be able to see how we're doing along the journey. Um, that initiative is specifically for you know dry and liquid bulk charters. I don't know whether other segments like containers have the same. There's a lot of ambition, but I don't know whether they have that same mechanism yet to uh, report progress. The sea cargo charter is an interesting one because not only is it a question of measuring transparently what is happening, it does it in a standardised way, which is crucial because there is obviously a great move now to be accountable, to be transparent, and I'm no doubt that many of them come with the best of intentions, but there is no standardization across the industry in terms of how these measurements are being made. And consequently, it's very, very difficult to benchmark against peer groups and companies in terms of how this is panning out on an industry-wide level. Uh, there are pockets of very good practice, I know, but. Um, do you think that, that that transparency needs to come with a little bit more standardisation in terms of how the industry is dealing with it? And, and are you having conversations with charters around this? I think the transparency is important. We're using the Energy Efficiency Operating Index, which is obviously a standard calculation. Um, I know that the Poseidon Principles is using AER. Um, we've chosen EEOI and we're sticking with that because it's um, represents the laden and ballast component of the journey rather than just you know the fact that the vessel is moving. Mm. Um, do we need to be able to compare across seg segments? I must admit I'm more interested in the journey that we are taking as a charter ourselves and the choices we are making ourselves because to me it's not necessarily is one segment doing better this year than another. Um, if you look at how the the cruise segment has done with the reporting of AER, it's challenging when circumstances change. So I must admit, I'm more interested in the journey that we ourselves as a charter are making defined by our own choices than I am in comparing ours, us with uh, with anyone else. Um, just going back to the question of dual fuel, this issue that we've got a generation of dual fuel vessels now operating is an interesting one. But at the moment, we're in a situation where LNG is significantly more expensive than you know, existing standard fuels. So consequently, we have a generation of vessels that are essentially not using LNG because it's commercially unviable to do so. Over the lifespan of those vessels, the assumption, of course, is that it will wax and wane depending on where the pricing is. It would seem odd, I think, to, um, you know, people outside shipping to see ships that have got logos plastered down the side saying green runs on LNG to then understand, actually, this is not running on LNG. I'm not suggesting that they're in any way sort of trying to greenwash the issue, but you know, there there is a reality here with dual fuel that it's only going to be running on the greener option uh, when commercially it makes sense. 
I think the choice with any investment um, in ships and the technologies is based on what makes economic sense. But as you comment, it's over the lifetime of the vessel. And so the situation we're seeing at the moment will change over time. I can't comment on on when. Mm. But what I would say is these choices of cleaner options and to go back to the beginning of our conversation, that acceleration of the development of net zero options would be helped by having market based measures that um, such as carbon pricing that incentivize that cleaner choice. Mm. And that's one of the things that we're lacking as an industry at the moment. And of course, that is the political hot potato right now within the IMO. We're obviously seeing that progress as an argument and we will follow it through many MEPCs to come. Um, But it does strike me that there hasn't been any great shift in terms of the political debate. There was no breakthrough at COP26. We have not seen any shift in terms of the political dynamics that you know have left a, a pretty big schism down the middle of the IMO in terms of what governments are and are not able to cede to within that debate. And until we see a wider political agreement, we're not going to see market-based measures coming out of the IMO anytime soon. This is you know, a necessarily complex political debate that has in many respects, nothing to do with shipping. And in the meantime, the distance between any agreement and where we are now is a matter of guesswork for for the shipping industry. And that's the reality. And that takes us back to the beginning of the conversation where we were having that sort of pragmatic choice around efficiency and how do you hedge one's bets, I guess. It's it's a question of flexibility is the, um, the only strategy that the shipping industry can take right now hence dual fuel, hence um, efficiency measures, hence not wanting to make any major bets in terms of technology for not knowing what the infrastructure looks like down the line. There's a lot of known unknowns in that equation. What what are the key barriers left to overcome in your mind and, and how does the industry best deal with that? I think one of the things that will unlock the transition for shipping is not just what shipping does. We do as an industry tend to look at ourselves in isolation, but Obviously, shipping is part of a global energy system and the moves that happen in other sectors, the power sector, heavy industry, I think these will help develop the infrastructure um, and create the demand for the renewables that shipping then will piggyback on. If we think about how um, LNG developed, where it was developed for the power sector and shipping ended up carrying it as a cargo, we could look forward and perhaps see something like that happening in shipping that will then help accelerate the ability for shipping to do it cost effectively, because that's really what we were talking about. If it was cost effective to install new technologies or if we had net zero technologies today that we could put on a ship safely and it was cost effective to do so, it wouldn't matter what the regulation or shipping would move anyway. So part of the reason that Shell has restructured its its customer interfaces essentially is around sectors is the recognition of the fact that it won't be one segment of, of the world in isolation, that we need to be able to build on that customer demand that spans those sectors and put those together to be able to make that transition A, happen for those sectors and B, to make it cost effective to enable that, that change. Mm. Okay. But certainly, um, you know, there are barriers just just within shipping, but I think these are the barriers that are being worked. So it's that technology development and it's the need for time. So if we look at you know, just the safety of the two front runners, if you like, for a net zero solution, the hydrogen based fuels, ammonia, um, 
there are some fundamental safety barriers that the industry is working on and there are projects that many parties including ourselves are involved in looking at for example the flammability of hydrogen and how do you manage that or for ammonia the toxicity how do we manage that safely um, how do we make it so that these fuels are de-risked sufficiently that at a point that they are available that we can safely use them with our crews on ships mm. and shell is obviously investing a huge amount of money in in a lot of these programs and you know, i know that you're looking at different ship types you know hydrogen co2 carriers you know there is a huge amount of investment in innovation broadly around this theme of sustainability and the shifting nature of how shipping is going to be set up for dealing with a, a sustainable energy system do you think there's enough investment being put into innovation around sustainability right now that's a very challenging question to answer it, it would happen more easily with greater funding um, obviously because that would then enable one to do more or to accelerate it more quickly um, but there are projects happening you've mentioned hydrogen so our um, or the the joint venture project we're involved in with um, several Japanese companies for the Suiso frontier the hydrogen world's first liquid hydrogen carrier which is now carrying a cargo of hydrogen um, from Australia the reason we're doing that and the reason we have our crew on the ship we're technically managing the vessel is so that we can understand how to handle that in a marine liquid hydrogen in a marine environment develop the training develop the standards develop the instructions so that then industry can develop it you can't really shortcut that you need to be able to to, to do those trials to then tick off that milestone and then move to the next one um with co2 um we are as part of a joint Northern Lights joint venture with Equinor and Total. We are building two CO2 carriers. Again, they are a specific size. You need to develop the technology to do that because the ships previously have CO2 carriers have been carrying it for the food and drinks industry. The volumes are completely different. There is an iterative process that needs to happen. You could accelerate with greater funding, but some of the particularly that de-risking work and the development of the technology can't happen without allowing the time to do it probably what you could accelerate with greater funding is that shifting from you've got the technology developed to then it being commercialized and being able to roll out to uh, to to ship owners making orders for their future fleets mm. but that that scaling up process that's the bit we've missed to some extent we've not got to yet because there has been a whole series of of, of, of small scale uh, pilot projects on many, many different issues, not just, you know, the, the fuels or the infrastructure, but scaling that requires uh, cooperation, collaboration across the industry. It requires uh, government funding. It requires energy and shipping and various aspects of the entire value chain coming together. The, these are all individually very tricky processes together. They are um, unprecedented and uh, an almost insurmountable problem. And you're, you're not just dealing with economics there. You're dealing with politics and uh, established commercial uh, entities, um, you know, not necessarily wanting to uh, collaborate with competitors. I mean, it's a hugely complex series of things to negotiate there. The bit that you're just describing, the, you know, the investing in, in, in technology itself, that is in some way the easiest bit and, and yet that is you know very tricky so um speeding those things up and scaling them i guess that's the uh, that's the next phase 
I think it is that speeding up piece because what you've just described of you know developing something completely new in a way we did that with LNG but mm. we did it over 50 or 60 years where we started off with LNG as a cargo that then developed the storage hubs globally and then that created then the, the, the demand that could then transfer into vessels and then there was government support for then developing LNG as a fuel and then that then gave having the storage already available means that you only have the last mile to develop to bunker the vessels and then the combination of all that with the supportive regulatory regimes then gives you the confidence on the ship owner and the bunker provider to invest what we're looking at now is trying to accelerate that with some of these new fuels um but it won't be shipping's accountability to do all of that so Mm. some of what you've talked about that you know, the, the, the infrastructure that will be driven by demand from other segments um, such as power or, or heavy industry. And it's really about making sure from a shipping perspective that we are watching what's happening in those other segments so that we can we can build on top of it. So um, if we're looking at, say, you know, hydrogen electrolyzers, um, are they near ports? A lot of industrial hubs sit near ports. It's probably things that happened in the past just iteratively because we built on what had already been done we probably need to be a bit more considered about how we approach that and I'm thinking you know with an energy provider hat on here rather than a a shipping hat Um, and that's where the concept for example of the green corridors um, it's a sound concept because really what that is talking about is accelerating something that happened naturally in in LNG or in other fuels that we've used but now needs to be a bit more um, considered, but certainly that wider collaboration is what's needed to develop the renewables production infrastructure um, mm. for those other segments that shipping then piggybacks on top of. And that is where we are going to leave it for another week. My thanks to Claire for, as ever, a thoroughly interesting chat. Looking ahead in terms of Lloyd's List coverage, we've got a cybersecurity report in the works and a webinar coming up on that topic, hosted by yours truly. But in the run-up to that, we're conducting an industry survey on cyber, trying to get a better understanding of where we are as an industry on this issue. So please do take the time to fill it out if you can. It's pretty short, it's completely confidential, and the results are going to offer a very useful view for everyone if you all pitch in. Loistlist.com for details, or look out for us on social channels. You'll find me sporadically on Twitter via at LloydsListEd, or on LinkedIn. So feel free to get in touch on that or any other topic. For now, thank you for listening and have a good week. Bye.